Because I want to see my Jesus. Because I want to see. Oh, because I want to see my Jesus someday. Amen. Just praise Him this evening. Let's put it in uh, F again. Let's sing that song, I Just Want to Be Where You Are. Oh, I just want to be where you are, dwelling daily in your presence. And I don't want to worship from afar, so draw me near to where you I just want to be where you are in your dwelling place forever. Just take me to the place where you are. Just try, just want to be. to be where you are, dwelling in your presence, feasting at your table, surrounded by your glory, in your presence, oh that's where I I just want to be with you. Oh, I just want to be where you are. Dwelling daily in your presence. I don't want to worship from afar. I just want to be where you are, in your dwelling place forever. Just take me to the place where you are. Oh, I just want to be with you. I want to be where you are, dwelling in your presence, feasting at your table, surrounded by your glory, and in your presence. 
That's where I always want to be. Oh, I just want to be. I just want to be with you. Amen. If you would just continue playing that softly here. Uh, You may have your seats for just a moment as we go over the requests. We just want to remember the Sylvesters uh, this evening. They are not here with us. We also want to remember the Browns. Let's just remember Rachel and the boys who are not here tonight. Um, Also, if you would remember the Whitlocks and Lucas, who are still in Virginia this evening. We also just uh, want to remember uh, Sir Doris Reynolds. Uh, She's home with neck and back pain. That's from Brother John Reynolds. And uh, I don't have any other requests here, so if you would just stand with me once again. Sorry to have you up and down. And Brother Ron, if you would just uh, come and pray over these requests. Uh, Any unspoken requests by the lifting of your hand? I know we all have some. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this opportunity to be here this evening. Uh, We just ask you to pray for the ones that were mentioned. We just thank you for everything you've done for us and we just ask you to bless this word and the rest of the evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for that. Let's sing that song, uh, He's Got It All in Control. He's got it all in control. He's got it all Some things 
It's a great thing 
great thing to be a Christian. I want them back. I want them back. Amen. Brother Tom, if you would lead us in prayer. As Brother Barry comes this evening, let's sing that song, uh, This Is My Desire. Oh, this is my desire to evening and uh, then we'll go we'll sing that again and then we'll have a word of prayer uh, we want to remember uh, the Irishes who are not here uh, Grace and Madeline are flying in tonight and uh, we're asking that the Lord will get them down safely also Sister Mary Smith Sister Shirley Lingle's uh, mother uh, we're, we're remembering her in prayer she's going through a, a long uh, period of therapy the Sylvesters are not here uh, tonight and we Certainly are uh, anxious to see Lily and Joy, uh, Josh and Kristen's new daughter, and uh, we're praying for them. Uh, also as well, we had two uh, requests. One is for Brother Keith here, and Brother Keith's been diagnosed with a disease that makes his blood thick. Too many red blood cells, and uh, so he's going to a specialist, and we're just going to pray that God will go before you and uh, take care of that uh, sickness. Also, as well, we've been praying for little Lincoln Hennies. How do you say his last name? Hennies. And uh, Lincoln is the little guy that was born and uh, underweight. And uh, now that he's growing and stretching out on the curve, he's getting uh, below the line. 
that, that, they're, uh, that, that he should be. And so uh, we are praying that the Lord will undertake for him. They're doing some more tests. They're going to do some more strategies in changing his food. But uh, we're just going to ask that the Lord will undertake for Lincoln. He's seen him through this far, and I believe that he's able to carry him through. Let's hold him up in prayer. Let's sing it again. This is my desire to Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, with fear and trembling in our hearts, Lord, but yet yet we know that you have made a way for us to come into your presence. And so, Lord, we just come humbly and ask that you would just be mindful of these requests, Lord, that have been mentioned before you tonight. We have nothing in our hands to bring. Simply to thy cross do we cling. We come, Lord, on the basis of your sacrifice for us. Lord, we plead for these that are sick, these that are needy tonight. These requests, Lord, that are mentioned, and many we know that are not mentioned, that are buried deep within our hearts, we commit them to you. Father, we just pray, especially for little Lincoln, Lord, and asking, oh God, that you would just be gracious and mindful of his condition, Lord. He's not done right or wrong, and Lord, I just pray that you would just be merciful, because that's just the enemy trying to prematurely afflict his life. And I commit him into your hands, Lord. Pray that you would just do a real work in him. Father, we pray for Brother Keith. And Lord, each and every one of these needs, Lord, that we know are important. Father, we love you and we thank you. And we ask you now to bless this word tonight. Bless our little time of study, we pray. May you be in it all and receive all the glory and honor. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. And all God's people said... Amen. Let's look in the Bible tonight. Psalm 128. Thank you, musicians. Appreciate you uh, being here tonight. Psalm 128. Good to have all of you here today. And um, appreciate you coming tonight. Let's study in the scripture for a little bit tonight. We're going to be dealing with Shalom in the home. I don't want you to think I'm a minister of only... Two, two themes. I have, I have more, uh, but, and I trust you don't get tired of this. I'll, we'll, we'll cap it at 100. How's that? Um, 
But I appreciate your feedback because that really helps me here uh, in, in knowing that these things are relevant and helpful to you. Let's read uh, in verse 1, Psalm 128. Blessed is every one. That one there refers to men. Okay? Blessed is every man or every one that feareth the Lord that walketh in his ways. For thou shalt eat the labor of thine hands. Happy shalt thou be. It shall be well with thee. Thy wife. That's how we know he's speaking to men. Right? Thy wife shall be a fruitful vine by the sides of thine house, thy children like olive plants round about thy table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed that feareth the Lord, and the Lord shall bless thee out of Zion. Thou shalt see good of the good of Jerusalem all the days of thy life. Yea, thou shalt see thy children's children, and peace upon Israel. May the good Lord bless the word tonight. You may be seated. June 19th, I think uh, Mitchell mentioned we're going to have our gathering with our youth. We're going to be putting a temporary fireplace in over here, a gathering place over here uh, between the fellowship hall and the shelter. Uh, Not that we need the heat, but we need a gathering place. And then we're going to eventually put a permanent one in there, a more permanent one. And we planned that when we uh, poured the concrete out there between the shelter and the fellowship hall. So that will be on the 19th. And then also we're honoring our graduates on uh, June 27th. And we're going to be having a dinner after the morning service and honoring all of our uh, graduates. All right, let's turn into Scripture this evening here. And uh, we're taking a a thought here on Shalom in the Home. And these are, I'm going to subtitle this, Seven Principles of Biblical Families. Seven, Seven Principles of Biblical Families. There's lots of things here that we could say, but I wanted to kind of summarize things a little bit tonight. So uh, with the Lord's help, we'll try to do that. Uh, <clears throat> it's, it's important for us to uh, maintain a, a unique perspective uh, as to uh, how God has called us in this particular uh, age and generation. Of all the ages which, uh, in many ways, things rolled on, uh, for for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years over the Gentile dispensation, uh, the the world and the church were two separate things. The world and the church were two separate things. But in the last day, God warns us that the uh, the, the church becomes in danger of actually becoming like the world, and as a result of that, it loses its strength. So. This is a a real warning for us because as the people of God, as the church of God, we are called or commissioned to resist the the influence of the world around us and to raise our children in it so they in turn can raise their families according to kingdom principles, right? Now, if you don't mind, just this is not in the the script here, but 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let's just take a look at it here for a moment if you have your Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 3. So Paul writes this, uh, this note in the last days that perilous times shall come. This is when the cup of iniquity becomes full, as we've mentioned before. And men shall be lovers of, them own, of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful and unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers. I'm in 2 Timothy 3.3. 3. False accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Now, that sounds like, that sounds like 
the people of the world. That in the last day, this is the way it's going to become. But Brother Branham comes along and tells us, he said, this is not just speaking of the world. He said in verse uh, 5, he said they have a form of godliness. So in other words, this is the characteristic of how the people who are supposedly churchgoers are, who have a form of godliness begin to act like and are characterized like the people of the world. Because that sounds like worldly people, doesn't it? Covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful and unholy. That's all of these descriptions here in three, uh, 2, 3, and 4 are all descriptions of people without Christ. They're unconverted, right? They're the heathen, we'd say. But here, in verse 5, Paul says they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power. So they have a form. They have, uh, you know, an outward appearance of being churchgoers and all the rest of it. Uh, but they have all these characteristics associated with them. So that's the great danger, right? Do you understand? You get a sense of the, of the danger here. Because the world is the world. And the church is supposed to be the church. But when the church becomes like the world, we got a problem. And that's why he says in the last day, we got a problem. Perilous times shall come. So we've got the responsibility to maintain the true identity of Christ's church. Right? Therefore, we have to resist. We have to push back. We have to make sure that none of those characteristics fit us. That none of those descriptors describe us. None of those adjectives apply to us. And therefore, we have to live our lives, conduct our relationships, uh, conduct our affairs, uh, live in our home like Christians would. You have to live. You had the responsibility and the commission to live outside of here like Christians, just like you live like Christians here. We act and dress and conduct ourselves like Christians when we're in the church. But that's not hard. That's not the challenge. It's when you go out in your workplace and it's when you go out in your uh, home and school and the environment that you're called to, uh, to, to live in. That's where the challenges are, right? And so this becomes more essential for you to do in your home. And the only way that we're going, really, the only way that we're going to have any semblance of peace in our homes is when we follow things, uh, follow kingdom principles or the, uh, the Word of God and a description uh, of, the, of the, the way that God uh, has designed the family. There's really three things that God has, uh, that the Bible uh, describes or the, the Bible gives us rules of conduct for. And one is the church and how we should act among believers and how we act in the presence of God. Think about the whole Bible now. That the whole of Scripture deals with how we should conduct ourselves in the church and how God's presence, you know, He wanted to be among the people, where the priest should stand and the offerings that should be offered, uh, the blood that was sprinkled. and uh, Even in Romans 12 in the New Testament, Paul says we present our bodies a living sacrifice, right? So in, in, in the church... Uh, that's, that's a description uh, that's given to us, and we find that in Scripture. And, and as well, we, we find uh, there are uh, descriptions about uh, how we deal with people, how we deal with individuals, those that are within and those that are without. And there are descriptions about family and family life, like Paul writes here. Likewise, ye younger, of lesser rank, be subject to your elders. And he says... We should serve one another. And, and the Bible is full of descriptions of how we should conduct ourselves in church and at home and with one another. Right? The Bible doesn't tell us how to run your business. The Bible doesn't tell us how to get a degree. It doesn't tell us how to do things like that. Right? It, it, it is concerned 
mainly about those three things. Now, there are things in there about us being honest and upright and all the other things that, are, that we can apply in our business and in our working life and so forth. But the primary focus of the Scripture is, are, are those three things. Would you agree? You've got to say it loud now because we've got a lot of people who missed the announcement about having service every Wednesday night. You got it, right? Or you got your Wednesdays mixed up. But, hey, we're going to have service every Wednesday night, Lord willing. So uh, that is true. Spread the word. Uh, everyone hasn't got it. And I understand uh, some people uh, haven't got it. So they're listening tonight. May God bless them. We love them, too. <laughs> there are three ways that we learn about families. Number one, we learn families out of our own experience and the house you grew up in. Good, bad, or indifferent, that's how a lot of people have learned, uh, learned about families, right? And uh, we know that uh, whether we like it or not, fathers have a responsibility to uh, represent God to their children because if fathers mess up, uh, you know, and kids look at their fathers as someone who is a failure or an adulterer or, uh, you know, indifferent to the things of God, then, you know, later on when they get older and they start to hear about Father God, they have kind of an indifference about Father God, right? And that's just a real fact of life. And so, therefore, we as fathers, we have responsibility to be the God image for our young children until they can uh, separate from that image and have their own perception of Father God themselves. But ideally, we want to give them a good understanding and a good feeling about what fatherhood actually is. Secondly, people learn about, uh, they learn about families by other families. They look at other families and they, uh, they hear from their friends and they hear from, uh, we hear from each other and watch each other and talk, visit with each other and, uh, that's a good thing and we learn how other families operate. The third uh, way that most people learn about families is through uh, the stories that are told, right, through media or uh, through books and TV and all of our education and so forth. All of those things are ways that people get an impression about family. And, of course, our government now is changing the definition of family. They're changing the definition of marriage. They're changing the definition of parenthood, right? And so, therefore, we've got to be careful that we don't let our children fall into the trap of taking their cues from the cosmos and learning about family from the media. You've got to be proactive. You've got to be involved in that. You've got to make sure that uh, your, your kids and your grandkids get a true impression of what fatherhood is. And that's why uh, we come to uh, Psalm 128. Now, Brother Branham describes it here. I've given you this before, that uh, we live for God first and then for family, and then we put ourselves last. So that's a priority that he gives us, and he tried to live himself. But I want you to look at this scripture verse right here. I really like it. There's a whole lot of really good lessons in here, and uh, I, I want to uh, I, I deal with that uh, for a, a little bit tonight here and doing these seven things. So I'm just rushing until I can get there. So this is the ideal scenario. This is the, the thought of God, okay, that, that uh, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church. So everybody in the, in, everybody in the chain has a head. We all are under headship, isn't that right? And remember that uh, headship is, uh, is a designation of service. So no matter where we are, we are in a position of service to somebody. Jesus redefined our idea of kings. He said, you know, as among the Gentiles, uh, he says people will serve the king. But when Jesus defined leadership and headship, uh, he took a towel and girded himself wherewith he was girded. And he knelt before the disciples with a basin of water and washed their feet. And he was the greater among them, wasn't he? 
And yet he was said, I'm among you as one that serves. And so therefore, uh, this picture is not a hierarchy of worth. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is not a picture of worth. Because you're, you're all just as, we are all just as valuable in the eyes of God, and we are all predestinated, and we're all saved by the sacrifice of Calvary. We're all saved and cleansed by the same blood. This is not a picture of worth. This is a picture of God's redemption for families in the earth because of the fall, right? So therefore, everybody has a head, and children obey your parents, and all things for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. All right, let's look at uh, uh, seven principles for biblical families. Number one, marriage is for one man and for one woman. I trust that in this uh, congregation there is no misunderstanding about this at all, uh, but marriage is for one man and for one woman, period. And no matter how people will try to redefine that, I believe that marriage is for one man and for one woman. Hey, listen, there are, there are aggressive, uh, there are aggressive, uh, teachers out there who are trying to put before children a redefined image of what marriage actually is. And how marriage and how families can be. Nonetheless, we are talking about biblical principles here for the success of families, and I will tell you that, uh, marriage is designed by God. And, uh, if you, uh, if you, uh, want to, um, if you want to find out who's responsible for this whole idea of marriage, you can go right back uh, to the beginning in the, uh, in the, uh, in the uh, book of Genesis and find where God established things a very specific way. And we believe that uh, this is not a product of the state. I said marriage is not a product of the state. Matter of fact, marriage was around before the state, and the state would not exist if there wasn't marriage. And so this is really important here now. I want you to take a look at uh, this scripture in Genesis chapter 2 here. And the Lord God took man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. The first thing that God gave man to do was a job. And man went to work first, right? In, in, in the giving out of responsibilities in the Garden of Eden here, God put man to work. Because I believe that's the right thing for men to do. Men should not be home playing video games and letting their wife bring in the income and him uh, bring in unemployment or uh, stimulus money, I believe that a man should not be afraid to work. Until the Garden of Eden, until about the 1970s, men were, were, were easily able to identify with manhood and work and responsibility. Not everybody, of course, but the vast majority. But now, hey, a lot of men have become soft. They've lost their identity. They kind of don't know who they are. Wouldn't you agree? A lot of young girls will tell you. A lot of young girls, we go to the retreat, and a lot of young girls, hey, there's generally more girls at the retreat than there are boys at the retreat. Now, the girls, uh, I better be careful what I say, but I will tell you this, that, uh, a lot of girls will say, well, hey, there's not a lot of real good, solid young men around who are, uh, you know, number one, they believe God, they love God, believe the message, and they stand for what's right, and they are, are, are able to, uh, you know, have a job and, and uh, you know, get an education and, and be the kind of man that a girl would want to marry. A lot of girls will tell you that. This is not the same in every case, but I believe that the way that God ordained it in the beginning was that, uh, that uh, God put man in the Garden of Eden and he was to, uh, to dress it, which means that he worked in the garden, and then also he kept it. He learned guardianship. He learned shepherding in the Garden of Eden. He was to guard or to watch over and to keep an eye on everything that God gave him 
to look after. Number, number 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the Garden of Eden thou may eat, mayest eat freely. So in other words, God established boundaries, second of all, for the man and for the family, whoever was to come. They were going to live within boundaries that God had set. 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt die. 18, and the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. So in this environment where man's got a responsibility, he's learned to work, he's learned to be a guardian, he's got boundaries that he lives within, when God's taught him that, then in verse 18, the next thing that God says is that uh, we're going to make a helpmeet for him. Now, isn't it true in our time, a lot of, a lot of people get it backwards and they say, well, I gotta get married first and then all this other stuff will fall into place. Hey, I will tell you this, girls, I think it's nice for you to look for a young man who's got a sense of responsibility, he's got a, he's got a work ethic about him, he's got, uh, you know, the wherewithal to, uh, not only to guard, uh, you know, his, his time and his possessions, but also to guard his relationship with God. I think it's great when you see a man who's willing to preserve and fight for and defend his relationship with God. I think that's a good thing. When a man says, oh, no, I'm not going to have this interruption, and I'm not going to let that uh, sport or uh, that activity or that girl or my new car or anything else or my payment for my new car or whatever else, I'm not going to let any of that get in, my, get in the way with my relationship with God. I'm not going to miss church because uh, of things that are out there in the world. He's going to defend that. He's going to guard that. God's given him a responsibility to do that. And he lives within the boundaries. Hey, girls, if a young man does not live within the boundaries before he's married, he's probably not going to live within them after he's married. And so, therefore, it's nice to look for a good man who will do that. And I'll tell you what, when a man begins to walk in these principles here that are found in the first three verses, you watch God add to that man's life a woman that he can share and walk with through the rest of his life. Now, let me take this a little further, all right? I want to dwell just a little bit on on this number one. The word family in the Bible is first found right here, Leviticus chapter 25, and this refers to the Jubilee. Uh, Ye shall hallow the 50th year and proclaim it and so forth. And when a man is freed from his bondage, ye shall return every man unto his family. That word family there, it means clan or lineage. It means clan or lineage. Forgive me for using this illustration. But if I married Joe right here, as perverse as that would be, if I married Joe, we would defy God's definition of family. Because we could never become a lineage. We could never become a family. We could never be a clan, no matter how hard we tried, right? Do you understand? So today in the world, uh, people are trying to redefine the word family now as something that God did not intend. And if you want to, you can bring them back to a scripture like this and show them that that word, it means lineage. And there's no way that uh, two men or two women can have any kind of a lineage at all. Therefore, they're outside of the boundary of God's definition of what a family is. Now, they're going to dismiss the Bible, and that's not your problem. That's their problem that they're going to have. But let me tell you something. When a family is is structured right, 
They're going to be able to have a lineage. They're going to have a clan. They're going to have offspring. They're going to have people that follow them. That's going to be important as we go down and look at this. Now, we also find that, that one of the attributes of family is that they share values. They share uh, ideals. They share uh, things in common. So, uh, for instance, like uh, some of you girls that are here are nannies. And uh, it, it, these days, uh, you know, a family that can afford to have a nanny, they're going to look for somebody that is going to share some of the ideals that they have in order to bring them in because they know that they're going to influence their family. They're going to influence their children, right? So if you were smart and you were a nanny's boss, if you were hiring a nanny today, you would find somebody, for instance, who didn't smoke or drink or bring their boyfriend into the house, right? Hello? I'd be looking for someone who had values that were similar to mine because that nanny is going to spend time with my children and they're going to, you know, eventually influence that children. Now, whether it's a nanny, that's an example, or whether it's a, someone who work, uh, works on the farm, somebody who comes along in your house as a house guest or whatever else, this is what Leviticus 16 means. This shall be a statute unto you in the seventh month. On the tenth day of the month you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether it be one of your own country, in other words, it's your own countrymen, or your own family, your own clan, or a stranger. So the, the thing that uh, they had in common was that uh, they had values, they had uh, principles that they shared in common with one another. They were not a conflict with one another, and that is a characteristic of families. Whether it's a family of God or whether it's your own personal family, the ones you're going to let in to be an influence in your children's lives is somebody who shares your values. That's why it's good when families can get together and be together and cooperate together and, uh, you know, have special events together. Uh, we rode up to Washington on Monday. We rode up to Washington and back on Monday because we wanted to be with Eliza on her birthday because, uh, you know, that's a special event. And they were also receiving some awards and one of the groups they're in. Uh, and, you know, it was a special day for them, and uh, we wanted to be there to share that because that's a right thing. We have, uh, we, we have uh, things in common with them, and we love them, and we want to influence them and encourage them in the right way. That's what families do, right? That's, what, that's how families support one another, and that's one of the characteristics of it. So, in other words, take all of this together. And think about in the Garden of Eden when God created the family. You've got to remember that. Hold it. Don't read it. I'll read it with you. Hang on. In the Garden of Eden before the fall, God created a scenario that he liked, and he thought this epitomizes my way of creating a family. This is the design I had in my mind, right? And then he rested. He didn't rest because he was tired. He rested because the situation was complete. And the word Eden in Scripture, it means five things, or it refers to five things. Here they are. Spot, moment, presence, open door, and delightful. Spot. The Garden of Eden was a, a, a place, it was a, uh, if you like, it was an open door where God could come anytime and commune with his family. That's, that's why it's called Eden, because it refers to this idea, this word of Eden, a place where God can come anytime. So when you create a family, uh, you want to have an open door for the Holy Spirit, don't you? You want to have an open door for God to come. You want to have a place that is delightful. It is uh, actually from the English word that we have, nirvana. It is a place of peace and a place of joy. It is a place of delight. Also, as well, most importantly, it is a place where a man can enjoy the presence of God. 
when God created Adam, Adam enjoyed the presence of God, didn't he? And everything was centered around God and Adam communing together and Adam living and dwelling and existing in the presence of God. That's what it was all about. Now, Satan marred that, but everything was about the presence of God. And let me tell you something. The presence of God is still incredibly important in your life because that's what brings you as a seed of God into maturity. The sun ripens every seed into maturity. And when the, when the presence of God is grieved away, you don't come to maturity as fast as you should. Come on, folks. In your home, you need to make sure your home remains a place where the presence of God is always welcome because that's going to bring you into maturity. Even if you don't have children, if you, you join the ranks of empty nesters, which is terrible. I mean, it's not terrible. It's just me and my wife. But it's terrible that we don't have any kids anymore. We're on the hunt for grandchildren and whoever else. You got any kids you want to let go, let me know. But uh, even if you're on your own, we still need to mature and grow. I see parents looking at their kids and saying, hey, whoa, did you hear that? I can be bought. I can be influenced. Even if you're on your own, we we still individually are coming to a place of maturity. Would you agree? And that happens not because you go to church and not because, uh, you know, you say you're in the message. That happens because you live in the presence of God. That's what brings you internally, the inner man, into a place of maturity. And if we grieve that, let me tell you, we've grieved everything. So let me say this now as we, as we kind of uh, summarize this a little bit here. When a man has a mind to work and he understands his role and his responsibility and he learns to live within the boundaries, and he respects and lives for the presence of God, he can invite a woman into that presence, and they both can grow and have a family. It's not a place that a man invites a woman to. It's the presence of God in his life that he wants to invite a woman into. Does that make sense? I love that. I just think that that's wonderful. As I was looking at this today, when you, when you put it together, this is the place that God wanted a man to come to, that he lives in the presence of God. He works. Uh, he's got, a, he's got uh, you know, a sense of responsibility. He's got a vision. He's got a direction in life. He's got uh, a respect for the boundaries that God has put in his life. And when he lives that way and the presence of God is with him, he can invite a woman to come and live in that presence with him as well. Let me tell you, that was God's design. Because when Adam got all of that right, then God said, let's give this man a woman. It's not right that he doesn't have a companion. Let's give him a, a, a companion. And let me tell you, that's why they haven't found the Garden of Eden is because it was not necessarily a place. It was not necessarily a physical place. But it was an atmosphere that God had created in which he and Adam lived and walked together. And when Adam got it right. And Adam got all of these things done. God said, it's not good for him to be alone. Now we're going to bring a woman into that. Girls, I would say this to you. Young girls, listen here. I would say this to you. That if you're going to find a boy, you find a boy that loves the presence of God. You find a boy that walking in the light of the revealed word of the hour. One that knows his boundaries. One that's not afraid to work. Uh, one that uh, lives for God and, and, and the God of, uh, the God of uh, you know, this age that we live in, the light of the hour. Let me tell you, you want to find a guy and enter into that presence with him. This is not just about who's got the money, who can give you the bigger diamond. This is not just about who's available. This is, this is you following the plan of God to enter in, like they did in the Garden of Eden, to find a man who walks in the presence of God. Does that make sense? 
Right, that makes sense to me. I really like that. <clears throat> but too late for you now to say amen. All right. The husband is the head of the wife. Secondly, the husband is the head of the wife. And remember this, that uh, this is not in any way a demeaning thing because authority is always given for others. Power in God's kingdom, like I said about Jesus, is serving. And the Son of Man came to serve and also to uh, uh, a man in his position is called to bring his family together often. Often. So he's, uh, in other words, uh, th- there should be a, a, a semblance under a man's leadership to uh, bring his family together and for him to uh, minister to that family in a way that they can feel like they're very much a part of what that man's particular vision, his calling is, and what, uh, you know what, I think it's important for a man to know what church he belongs to and uh, who his pastor is. I think a man should know very clearly, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And, and be able to bring his family along into that and, and to strive to work uh, at, at bringing that family together, uh, doing life together, in other words, and uh, making things uh, as, as uh, possible uh, in, in every sense of the word for the growth of everyone who's under his headship. In the same way that Christ is interested in your spiritual growth, a father is interested in making sure that his children become better each year because they're growing in the potential God has ordained for them. That's a challenge. We'll talk a little bit more about it here. And here's the scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And uh, Paul says, I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man. Again, a man's strength is derived from his position under Christ, not because he's smarter or he's got an extra degree or something else, but his position under Christ. And when he serves God, loves God, lives for God, let me tell you, everybody under his domain can also be blessed, even in multiple generations. Do you believe that? All right, let me give you an example. This is a real-life example here. Uh, These are two families, all right, two family trees. The first family tree is, is from a man named Max Jukes. Anybody heard of him? Of course you haven't. He's a criminal. And the other one was Jonathan Edwards, a great minister who lived in the 1700s. Let me tell you about Max Jukes. He was an unbelieving man who married a, an unbelieving woman who lacked, and they, <laughs> this is their description, they lacked principle. And among their known descendants, and this is somebody who went back and did the research, among their known descendants, there were 1,200 characters within that family tree who were studied from Max Jukes and his wife. 310 became vagrants. 440 physically wrecked their lives by a debauched lifestyle. 130 were sent to the penitentiary for an average of 13 years each. Seven of them were murderers. Uh, uh, There were over 100 who became alcoholics. 60 became habitual thieves. 190 were prostitutes. And of the 20 who learned a trade, 10 of them learned the trade in a state prison. And it cost the state about $1.5 million, and they made no contribution whatever in society. That was somebody who just followed the lineage of Max Jukes. In about the same era, the family of Jonathan Edwards came on the scene, and they are well documented. Jonathan Edwards' family are well documented. He was a man of God, married a woman who was a very godly woman, a woman who uh, was uh, very devout and, and uh, very astute at raising her children and so forth, but a very spiritual woman as well. I've read their life story. 
And the, the lineage of Jonathan Edwards, uh, their family became uh, a part of a study that was made as well uh, in parallel to this other family there. 300 became clergymen, missionaries, or professors in a Bible school. Over 100 became college professors. 100 became attorneys. 30 of them were judges. 60 of them became physicians. 60 became authors of classic books. 14 became presidents of universities. There were numerous giants in American industry. uh, And three became United States congressmen. And one became the vice president of the United States. Let me tell you, when a man serves God, multiple generations are blessed. Is it worth it to serve God? I'd say it is. So Jesus was not afraid to tell people who followed him that he was uh, among them as one that served. He says the kings of the Gentiles, they look at it differently. But I'm here to tell you how leadership is and how authority is in the kingdom. And he said, I'm among you as one that serves. Therefore, I think it's good when a man has the mindset that he's serving his family. He's not just building his portfolio for retirement. He's not just seeing how many toys he can accumulate. He's not just seeing how much money he could have in the bank, right? He's not just seeing how high he could climb the ladder. He's there on earth to serve God, serve his family, and then himself. Are we okay? I mean, that's what a prophet taught us. Number three, a wife is made for her husband. A wife is made for her husband. Now, I will tell you that uh, when it comes to this subject here, and uh, we, we could say a whole lot of things about it, but let me just say this, that there's two myths that we need to dispel. I've talked about them a little bit before. But number one is that submission is only for the wife. We know that that's not true, right? Submission really is for everybody. And I will tell you something, that when it comes to things gone wrong in the house, man's going to give an account first. God's going to ask that man why things are the way they are. And he may say, well, you know what, uh, my wife did this, and my wife paid for this, and my wife squandered her money, and so forth. Hey, that's a decision that you've made, even if your wife was the hands who did it. Number two, the other myth is this, that submission is weakness. And I don't believe that submission is weakness at all. Hey, let me ask you this question. Who was the most powerful person who ever walked on the face of the earth? Probably have to answer Jesus Christ. But who also was the most submissive? It was also Jesus Christ. And yet he changed the world, right? I think it's an important, for us to, uh, important thing for us to consider that. Now, let's look at something here in the scripture, all right, if you don't mind. Jeremiah chapter 34. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you don't mind, would it be all right if we looked at this in the, in the Bible? Well, come on, let's go. Let's look at it in the Bible here. Jeremiah chapter 34, because this is a great lesson here. Love this little story. Jeremiah chapter 34. I don't think I've ever read it to you before, but... If it would be all right. I think we have time. Jeremiah chapter 34. Now God is illustrating something to Jeremiah here and the people. And he wanted them to get this lesson here. So let's read beginning at, um, at verse 8. This is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after that King Zedekiah had made a covenant. I mean Jeremiah 34, 8 had made a covenant with all the people which were at Jerusalem to proclaim liberty unto them. So this was kind of like a, um, a, a jubilee that was declared among the, the children of Israel. So the king had made this decree that they were going to declare liberty to everybody who was in bondage. That every man should let his manservant and every man his manservant, being a Hebrew or a Hebrewist, go free. 
that none should serve himself of them, to wit, of a Jew his brother. So in the family of God, in the church, we'll say, everyone was in agreement at this point because of the decree of the king that they were going to let their brothers be forgiven of their debt. Okay? This is, this is going to be a, a, a liberty, a, a jubilee for everybody here, and this is what they agreed to do. Verse 10. Now, when all the princes and all the people which had entered into the covenant, so they had, had all agreed, heard that everyone should let his manservant and everyone his maidservant go free, that none should serve themselves of them any more, then they obeyed and let them go. But afterwards, afterwards they turned and caused the servants and handmaids whom they had let go free to return and brought them into subjection for servants and for handmaids. They thought, there ain't no way I'm going to let that person Go free. They owe me money. So they turned. They changed their mind. They had agreed to the covenant, and then they changed their mind, and they, made, they forced them into subjection. This is kind of a forceful, negative meaning of the word subjection. I'm going to make you my servant. I'm going to make you pay. That's what, that's what the word means there. Now, let's just finish the story for the story's sake. And therefore the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, I made a covenant with your fathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, that at the end of seven years, let ye go every man his brother in Hebrew. This is the, this is the law. I made the covenant with your fathers. This is the way it's been. And he says in the end of that verse, But your fathers hearken not unto me, neither incline their ear. And ye were now turned and had done right in my sight. You, you agreed. In proclaiming liberty to every man his neighbor. And he had made a covenant before me in the house which is called by my name. But you turned and polluted. You changed your mind. You were influenced by something. And he says you caused every man his servant and every man his handmaid whom he had set at liberty at their pleasure to return and brought them into subjection to be under you for servants and handmaids. You couldn't forgive. You couldn't let go. You couldn't release them of the debt that they owed you. And therefore, thus saith the Lord, 17, Ye have not hearkened unto me in proclaiming liberty, every one to his brother and every one to his neighbor. And behold, I proclaim liberty for you, saith the Lord, to the sword, to the pestilence, and to the famine, and I will make you to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth. So God is trying to bring a lesson to Israel in saying, uh, You know what, folks? You, you folks were in bondage to me, and you were in debt to me, but I forgave you. Now, he says, what would it be like if I changed my mind? In other words, you didn't get the lesson that somebody who is forgiven should also forgive his brother also, right? And as a result of this attitude that they have, God says, I'm going to turn you over to bondage here. But the people had taken their, uh, the people who owed them debts, and they subjected them, they subdued them or forced them to be handmaids and servants. In other words, the last line of the definition here, it means that they tread them down. That, my friend, is the wrong definition. That's the bad definition of subjection. Are we okay? That's a great illustration of the Old Testament. Let's go to the new now. In Luke chapter 10, this is when the disciples, and this is Jesus talking to ministers here, and they go out and they return with joy as they're gone out with a commission now to cast out devils and to heal the sick and so forth. And they came back with joy and said, Lord, even the devils are subject through thy name. And he said unto them, Behold, I beheld Satan as, as lightning falling from heaven, fall from heaven. And behold, I gave you power. I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. 
Notwithstanding in this, rejoice not that the, that the uh, spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Don't get caught up in this idea that I've got power and I can put my foot on this and put my foot on that. Don't get caught up in that. But rather make sure you keep the main thing the main thing, and that is your name is written on the Lamb's Book of Life, and that's the thing you ought to rejoice over. And you ought to say, thank you, Lord, for saving me and giving me the ability to be able to uh, walk in confidence in this world, but not to have uh, this, this uh, feeling of power. You can easily see how that power could go to somebody's head, right? We see it all the time in our world. We surely do. All right, so in the New Testament now, let's watch it again. But I keep under my body, Paul says, and bring it into subjection, lest by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. This is the idea where Paul says that I'm going to keep under my body, I'm going to discipline my body, I'm going to make sure that it's under control, it's not controlling me. Like an athlete, he, he makes sure he controls what he eats and when he goes to bed and uh, all of his activities. They're not going to control him. He's going to control them because he's got a greater goal. And this is the idea that Paul says, when it comes to my body, when it comes to, uh, you know, temptations or whatever else, I'm going to keep that under control. I'm going to exert a power or a control or dominion over that. And that's okay. You should have a determination in your heart. Hey, if there's a problem, if you've got a weakness that's identified in your life, and it might be music, it might be the Internet, it might be, you know, certain friends or whatever else, and they become triggers. You know what a trigger is, right? It sets something off. And if you've got something in your life or in your, in your uh, you know, vicinity that triggers you into weakness in your relationship with God, you've got to exert, exercise discipline to make sure you don't go near that atmosphere, that you don't go near that person, or you don't get involved. Remember Brother Bam talked about that woman who was, uh, she was uh, a great dancer in her time. Remember the young lady, and she's walking down the road one night, and she hears the music coming out of the dance hall, and she says, well, you know what, I'll just take a look. And what does she do? She gets over into that atmosphere, and you'll be surprised how strong those atmospheres actually are. Strong enough to pull a person who's born again right in underneath that influence there. Now, Paul says, is submitting yourselves unto one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as in the Lord. This is not the subjection. Listen, this is not the subjection of treading under. So a man never has a right to tread his wife under his feet. Everybody ought to say amen. And if you've got, I'll say this, if you've got a husband who treads you under his feet, you come tell me, because I'll talk to him. I will. Paul is saying here, the, the word that he's using is hupotazo, which means to arrange. And a household is arranged where that there's a husband who's the head of the house and a wife who's under her uh, husband and children obey your parents in the Lord. That's an arrangement that God has made, right? This is not violence. This is not, uh, you know, uh, uh, this is not abuse. This is not in any way anything related to that. This is rather a yielding to one's admonition or advice. So when Paul says we should submit ourselves one to another in the fear of the Lord, it means that, hey, a woman's got a revelation that, you know what, that's God's order. And I don't have the right to change God's order. But neither does a man have a right to change God's order. So a man's got to conduct himself honorably and fairly in his household because he knows that God is his head 
Jesus is his head, and he's going to answer to him. I despise the attitude that uh, at one point was prevalent within the ranks of the message where, uh, you know, the great white hunters were the great white hunters, and every woman was considered a Jane, and they clicked, and she had to jump. And I'll tell you what, I, I've, I've, in my day, I've seen some stuff that I don't even want to repeat. But I will tell you, that's a wrong interpretation of subjection. It's never abuse, and it's never dominion. It's never uh, a crushing under somebody's feet. A man should never do that. He should respect his wife as the weaker vessel, and as one that he is given a responsibility to guard. Remember, Adam was given the responsibility to keep the garden and to guard it. He's got to have a sense of guarding his family and not throwing his family to the dogs. Here's Brother Branham, uses the same expression. He says, he, Jesus, also created our bodies, and when our bodies have to obey him, you surrender, watch what, what's the order we, which he says, you surrender your thoughts to him, surrender your life to him, surrender your faith to him, and watch what that body obey what he says. When you submit your life to Christ, you watch what he orders your body to do. If you're a drunkard and you can't quit drink, drinking, surrender your life to him and watch, watch, you'll drink no more. If you're a habitual smoker and tried, try, and tried to give it up, can't do it, just surrender to him and watch what happens. You say, well, that's not true anymore. Hey, listen, I've been there, done that. This is absolutely true. This is my story. This is my testimony. This is my song. Some of you have your hands up in the air down there. I'll tell you what, it's absolutely true. And if God can't do that in the lives of believers, then we're serving the wrong God. But you've got to be willing to surrender your life to Christ. And he says, he'll make that body come back in subjection to the word. So in other words, he's the one that's going to force that body to do what he wants it to do in order to fulfill his purpose in your life. But you've got to surrender to him. You've got to believe him. He made our bodies. They obey his will also. So it's not your body agreeing and saying, well, you know what? The, the word says, so I, I won't be a drunkard anymore. No, let me tell you. Many times, listen, that stuff is governed by a spirit, and it takes the Holy Spirit who's stronger than that spirit in your body to cast that out and make sure that the strong man reigns in that house so that those seven devils that come back with him don't enter in anymore. Let me tell you this, and I, I, I just, I'm, I'm surprised at where this whole thing of the Holy Spirit's going uh, in my, just in my own studies and the way God's dealing with me. But sometimes I wonder... I wonder where all these spirits are coming from that are not the Holy Spirit. Because there are spirits that have invaded, uh, in a sense, invaded the message community. Uh, not the message, because I don't believe that the wrong spirits can invade the message. I believe the message is of God. I believe the message is God-breathed. But I see spirits creeping in. I see spirits creeping in in this church that I'm shocked at. And I'm just starting to figure out where it's coming from. And I'll tell you what, uh, it's just amazing. When you go to ministering on the Holy Spirit, other spirits all of a sudden show up. It's just amazing. Stay tuned. Can I go a little further? Well, I'll tell you what, just for, uh, you, you can take a look at, at, at this, uh, the, the PowerPoint's available here. But just for time, I've got to watch my time. Number four, children are a blessing. Children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. Children are not a problem. Children are not something to be fixed. 
Children's children are the crown of old men, and the glory of children is their fathers. Children, I believe, are important. Now, let's go back to our text here again. Blessed is every man that feareth the Lord, uh, every one that feareth the Lord, that walketh in his ways. For thou shalt eat the labor of thine hands. Happy shalt thou be, and it shall be well with thee. Thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine by the sides of thine house, and thy children like olive plants around a table. Now, this is the image that David gives here, and it's a really interesting image here, because he said, your wife will be like a fruitful vine. I don't know about you, but I've, we have vines that grow around our house, and some of those vines are really, uh, they're really clingy. Uh, they'll cling on to, to a brick. They'll cling on to a trellis, obviously. They'll cling on to vinyl siding. And they'll cling on to whatever they can uh, until they uh, get to their height and get to their full growth. And when a man, now watch now, what's the imagery? When a man fears the Lord and walks in God's ways, his wife is going to uh, grow. She's going to, uh, she's going to be better over time. Let me tell you what vines will do over time. Vines will cling. And I believe a wife should be able to cling on to her husband. I believe she should be able to cling on to God. But I believe she should be able to cling on to her husband. Can somebody say amen? I believe that a vine also climbs. It climbs higher. But I believe also the third thing that vines do, they cluster. When you leave a vine to grow, eventually in the season of blossoming, it'll cluster. And there'll be groups of grapes or figs or olives here is the imagery uh, that David is providing here. Thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine. The fruit of the vine is a cluster. So there will be fruit that's there. A woman will, uh, she'll cling on to things that are solid. And she'll uh, rise higher and higher. And she'll begin to cluster. And I think, I, I, I really do believe that... Uh, out of this whole picture in verse 4, he says, Behold, uh, sorry, and thy, and thy children shall be like olive plants around the table. I'm going too fast for my mouth here. Let me just stop for a minute on olive trees because this is really good. Olive trees are not really always the prettiest things, but they grow over a long period of time. And they grow in rocky soil. Uh, they don't come out of the rich earth of, uh, say, uh, you know, uh, the North Carolina red dirt there. But they come out of rocky soil like is in the Middle East. And they take a long time to be nurtured. They say it'll be 15 years before an olive tree, an olive, small olive tree, will actually grow and produce anything. It'll be 15 years. You've got to nurture it. You've got to water it. and You've got to feed it. and You've got to prune it. And you have to work with it over that 15 years. But they say that if you do that over that 15 years, you have about 40 years of production from that tree. Huh. Interesting. This is the first time here that uh, is mentioned in the Bible in Deuteronomy chapter 8 about olive trees. And uh, it's a really interesting thing because uh, the the olive tree is represented in everything from anointing the high priest to anointing for the sick or for food or for uh, wealth or for furniture. Uh, I mean, olive trees are really important in the whole scheme of things and they're, uh, they're really prominent in the scripture here. And so therefore, uh, David is saying that if a man will serve the Lord, let's just go back there for a minute, if a man will serve the Lord, and hold on, eventually I'll get these buttons figured out here. When, here's our text, thy wife will be as a fruitful vine, and thy children like olive plants around about thy table. So 
David is describing the fact that if a man serves the Lord, his wife is going to grow and she's going to cluster and she's going to be fruitful in her life as well. In other words, you know, a a wife who entertains others, a wife who creates an atmosphere in her own house, a wife who uh, labors for, for and with her husband, and then also the children are like olive plants around the table. Children are not born matured. It takes about 15, 16, 17, 18, 30 years until they become mature enough really to produce, right? And then for another generation, another 40 years, they're productive. But what this husband and wife do is they, uh, th- their children grow like olive plants. They grow like olive trees around that table until they come to a place of maturity and then they're able to produce on their own. Let me tell you, it's not an automatic thing. And that's why, let's just, for a moment here, let's just skip the couple of screens here. Then number five, seven principles for biblical families. Parents are called to train, teach, and disciple their children. So if you want your children to be productive in that 40 years, you've got to make sure you work in the 15 years that you have. I'm just in, uh, tying this to the olive tree. To help them to be able to produce good things in their 40 years. In other words, in their, in their adult years, in their producing years, in their family years. You want your children to raise your grandchildren in the right way, you spend time to raise your children in a godly way in their early years, when they're around about your table. Does that make sense? Hey, I don't want to lose you here, so let me just wrap it up here. Through money, is a house builded? It's not what it says. Through love, is a house builded? That's not what it says. But wisdom is the way to build a house. Wisdom is the thing that Solomon says is what helps a house be strong. Because we want a house that's going to stand against the winds of time. And like Jesus said, a man who builds his house upon a rock, he's going to have stability in the times that are difficult. And it's the times that are difficult that we really want to uh, make sure things are done right. Right? Just like we're talking about on Sunday mornings, uh, that, you know, we wanna, we wanna be, we wanna have the right thing, because when everything breaks loose and everything that can be shaken will be shaken, we wanna have the right thing that cannot be moved off its foundation. Right? Solomon has given us this admonition about homes as well, that through wisdom and house is built. It's not sexual intimacy. It's not money. It's not, you know, a feeling of love. All of those things are good, and they go with the right choices and so forth. But when it comes to building a house, and I'm not talking about the structure, I'm talking about the family. When we talk about doing that, it takes great wisdom. It takes the wisdom of Job. It takes the finances of Solomon. It takes the patience of, of Job, sorry. Uh, you know, it, there's many, many attributes that need to be employed in building and maintaining a household for God. We find this idea all through Scripture. 1 Samuel chapter 12. He said, this is Samuel dealing with the, the children of Israel about a king. And he says, And turn ye not aside, that ye should go after vain things, which cannot profit nor deliver, for they are vain. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. Moreover, as for me, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and right way. The responsibility that a man of God feels is to teach those under him the good and the right way. And Solomon is saying, don't fall into the trap of of, uh, following idols and so forth. 
So David picks up the same thing and says, Come ye children, hearken unto me, and I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. Because that's what a parent wants to do. That's what a leader wants to do, is to serve those that are under him by teaching them the ways that are going to obtain a blessing in their life, not a curse. I want to teach this church. I want to teach you. I want to teach your young people. I want to teach everybody. I want to teach my grandchildren as well to live in a place where the blessings of God can flow rather than say, well, I'll just teach doctrine and we'll just talk about the mysteries and, you know, you live whatever way you want to and, uh, you know, carry on whatever way you want to. Hey, listen, the blessing of God comes on your whole life, not just on your doctrinal understanding. Because, number one, we don't want our girls to be compromised before they're married. We don't want our boys to be compromised before they're married. I believe the, right, I believe the first kiss should be at the altar when they're married. Because that's what a prophet taught us. Like it or not, old-fashioned or not, that's what a prophet taught us. The first kiss should be there. If you're a believer now, if you're a believer. Wish we had more time. But Paul tells Timothy, Therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things thou hast heard of me among many witnesses. The same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach also others also. So there's not just one teaching. There's not just one teacher. There are, there are things handed down to be handed down, to be handed down, to be handed down. Are we okay? Ephesians 6, 1 to 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and thy mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long upon the earth. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So in other words, a man's got to have some wits about it. He's got to have some knowledge of, of the ways of God. He cannot just point uh, to the things of God. He's got to be able to walk in them and let their children see those things. Number six. We are called, children are called to obey and honor their parents. If we go back to the scripture I just read, the middle two verses there, honor thy father and thy mother, that it may be well with thee, uh, that is the responsibility that young people have. And you want them to respect authority. Like I said a week or two ago, uh, it, the idea in the Old Testament was that when an elder walked in the room, they stood, because that was a sign of respect. I will tell you, there's a real lack of respect in our world today. A real lack of respect. And you listen to the music that, uh, that is being sung. And you listen to the lyrics that are uh, being, being spoken. My goodness, it, it scared the life out of you. It scared the liver out of you to hear what young people are feeding on. I'm not talking about you now, but I'm just saying some of the stuff that's out there and you hear in a store, uh, it's just absolutely incredible. But it's not uh, parent honoring. It's not authority honoring. It's not law and order honoring. It's very dishonoring and disrespectful, right, in our world. Okay, so that's the world. The church should not be like the world. The church should be like the church. The church should be following the principles of the kingdom of God. Honor thy father and thy mother is, uh, ha- has a place, a prominent place in the commandments because it's number five. All right, last thing I'm going to say. Last thing I'm going to say is that families need a multi-generational vision. Now, let me just stop in this on, on this and say... You'll find this verse in, in many, this idea conveyed in this verse in many places in the Bible. In Deuteronomy 1, where it says, Behold, I've set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers. Plural. 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give unto them and to their seed after them. So when God gave a vision to Abraham, God gave a commission to Abraham and gave him the land, Abraham went as far as he could go. And where Abraham stopped, Isaac picked up. And Isaac carried on with the same vision, same belief, right, until Jacob came. And Isaac went as far as he could go, and when he was old, Jacob picked up. And Jacob went as far as he could go, and then Joseph, uh, you know, was involved. The the fathers uh, of the tribes of Israel are involved and so forth. So in other words, let me say it this way. Abraham's ceiling was Isaac's platform. And Isaac's ceiling was Jacob's platform. And Jacob's ceiling, in other words, as, as high as Jacob could go, his sons picked up from there and went onwards. My ceiling should be a platform for my boys to carry on in the faith. So in other words, it's a shame when a young man leaves his father's house and establishes his own and says, you know what? We got to do things according to the Bible. We got to change everything. We got to change the way we grew up. We got to change the way that we lived because we got to get uh, we got to get things in order according to the Bible. It's a shame when a young man will take over have, take over a church and have to bring that church back in line with the Scripture. Because my ceiling should be the platform for another, and that's a multi generational vision. It should not my In other words, my life and my work should not be inconsistent with the Scripture so that whoever takes over, if, if God permits, if God allows time to go on and I drop dead because of old age, which is not too far away. But you understand what I'm saying. If if I reach my ceiling, I would want somebody to step in on my ceiling as their platform to carry right on. That's what Paul was meaning in 2 Timothy 2 and 2 when he said, uh, the things you've heard of me, he says, teach to others who will teach to others as well. When Paul went as far as he could go, then somebody else picked right up and carried right on. Someone else picked right up and carried right on. You understand that that's not going to happen by accident. That's going to happen on purpose when a man, as we read in our text here, when a man fears the Lord, serves God his way, you know what? His children are going to rise up. They're going to have 15 years of ugliness and nurturing and living in rocky soil. But eventually they begin to produce. And when that man fades off the scene, you know what? There's another tree now that's producing olives there. There's another tree that's producing good fruit. My ceiling should be the platform for my sons to live. In my house, my wife and I, we go as far as we can in doing the right things. Then let our children carry right on. And then their children carry right on. That is a multi-generational vision. Let's stand to our feet. Those are seven biblical ideas. Uh, David writes in Psalms, Yea, thou shalt see thy children's children, and peace upon Israel. That was a, that was a blessing that David was pronouncing there. Uh, Proverbs 13, A good man leaveth an inheritance for his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. Children's children are a crown of old men. So a man should... Leave a legacy and leave an inheritance and leave on a platform for someone else to step onto. That's the scriptural principle. And if you want to have shalom in the home, that's what the Bible teaches.
How many believe God's word? Amen. Amen. I love the Lord. Play something, Matt, and we'll sing something. We'll probably play what you sing. Sing what you play. I think it's a wonderful thing for us to have uh, direction here so that we as a church don't become like the world around us. Hey, as fast as, as fast as you can figure it out, they're changing the boundaries and the, and the description of families and all of that. I think we had to be just as aggressive in teaching our children, hey, that's not the way God made families. And it's not going to work. Over time, it's not going to work because no one's going to become a clan under that definition. No one's going to become a lineage under that definition. So stick with God's definition. Get in line with that. And watch what God does in your family tree. I don't know about you. I, I thank God. I've been blessed. I've been blessed in many ways in my life, and I'm very thankful for that. But I want to see that blessing pass on. I want to see it pass on to you. I want to see it pass on to my sons and, and grandchildren. I want them to be blessed. I want them to uh, have God's uh, anointing on their lives. I, I definitely do. But I, let me tell you, the only way you'll do that is to, to stay in the fear of God's commandments. That's the only way. That's the only way. We are the generation, we're the culmination, the final voice the world will hear. Coming out, the Lord is here, living out the revelation, overcoming sin's temptation, will go to every tongue. Yeah. 
control. I don't know what key that's in. That sounded really good when you sang it before church here. Let's try one more, one, this chorus here. He's got it all in control. God's got it all in control. Take control, Lord, of the decision-making process that happens, Lord, under my roof. And, Lord, you would soften hearts where they need to be softened. You would stir us up where we need to be stirred. Lord, you'd put words in our mouth, wisdom in our hearts, so that we can guide things, Lord, in a way that pleases you. Our home should be a reflection of another kingdom, not on this earth, but another kingdom. Because we don't want to live like this kingdom. We want to live like they live on the other side. And so, Lord, in order to do that, we need to know what you require. And, Lord, we need to practice what you say. Help us, Lord, I pray, each one. And, Lord, we know that as long as we're in these bodies, in this kingdom, we know, Lord, as long as there's still sickness, there's a need for healing. And so we commit every hurting believer to you. Lord, I pray you'd be the bomb in Gilead, that you would be the one who binds up wounds. You're a God who restores, and we thank you for it. Bless the balance of our week, Lord, all those who are traveling and moving around or different places. I ask that you would just be gracious, Lord, to each one. Until we meet again, we commit our ways to thee. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. And amen, and all the people of God said, good to have you with us tonight. God bless you as you go. Sing it now together. God's got it.